open up in our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. You'll remember we'd been uh, making our way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and uh, we took a slight break for Easter Sunday, and then last week my family and I were out of town, but we return this morning to Ephesians 5 now, specifically in verses 15 through 21, verses 15 through 21. Let me read them in your hearing. Let us give attention now to the word of God. God says to us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Congregation, to have Christ is to have his spirit. You can't have one without the other. So if, if you are a Christian, then you are indwelt by the very spirit of God. Or to say the same thing just a little bit differently, the life of the Christian is life in the spirit. But that sort of language, I understand, this idea of life in the spirit, it might make some of us a little uncomfortable. And that's partly owing, I think, to some of the excesses of the charismatic movement. Today, life in the Spirit is equated with no shortage of blasphemous theatrics. Supposedly, barking like a dog or clucking like a chicken is evidence that the Spirit is at work in His people. Or uncontrollable shaking or grave-sucking or just plain speaking gibberish. This is all sort of touted as evidence of the Spirit at work in His people. But we should be quick to say it's not just some of the excesses of the charismatic movement that have muddied the waters. Many from our own tribe have done the same thing. For example, there are those who act like if you simply wear a suit and tie to church on Sunday and never smile, that that is somehow a gauge of one's high spirituality. Others base their life in the spirit on chasing emotional highs, just sort of going from mountaintop to mountaintop. Still more, as you know, have functionally eliminated the Holy Spirit altogether. Their Trinitarianism consists of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. But as is always the case, it is Scripture that charts the correct course. And that is specifically true this morning as we turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul's teaching on life in the Spirit. We've already seen, haven't we, how we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit upon our conversion. That was back in Ephesians 1.13. We've heard how the Spirit of God indwells the church and ushers us into the very presence of the Father, Ephesians 2.18 and 22. We've even been warned, remember, not to grieve the Holy Spirit in our midst by our gossiping and, and backbiting, Ephesians 4.30. And so here we are, further instructed on life 
in the Spirit. And of course, if you think about this for a moment, this whole thing just actually makes a whole lot of sense. And that's because since the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been laying out for us what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. He's been reminding the church that new birth means new life, and new life means life in the Spirit. The question before us then is really this question right here. What does that look like? With all the placebos that are around us, what does real, genuine, scriptural life in the Holy Spirit look like? And it's that question that Paul is going to answer for us this morning. But before we actually get to unpacking that answer, I do want you as a church to see something of the structure of our passage. And that's because I'm persuaded that if you see how this passage is put together, then you'll better be able to wrap your head and heart around what it is teaching us. So here's what you need to know. Focusing specifically on verses 18 through 21, there are really only two commands, and both are found in verse 18. After calling us to walk in wisdom, verse 15, and to understand what the will of the Lord is, verse 17, we meet the first command in verse 18. It says, and do not get drunk with wine. So that do not, that's the first imperative. That's the first command that's setting up verses 18 through 21. Now, very quickly, let me just say in passing, please recognize that Scripture does not forbid drinking here, but drunkenness. And there is a vast difference between the two. Why is drunkenness forbidden? Well, in the context, it seems rather clear, doesn't it? Drunkenness doesn't make you wise, verse 15. It makes you stupid right? Your IQ does not go up with inebriation. It plummets. How much common sense red tape has been cut by the drunkard? Nor is drunkenness the means of understanding what the will of the Lord is, verse 17. Unlike the mystery religions and the cults of Paul's day, we discern God's will for us not by plunging headlong into intoxication, but by clear-headed, sober thinking. We turn to God's word. We search his law. We discern what is most pleasing to God in light of all of the circumstances in front of us. We get on our knees and, and we cry out to him in prayer and, and we ask him for guidance and we ask him for grace. And I want you to recognize that in all of that, we are using our minds, aren't we? But drunkenness, it numbs our mind. So instead of being drunk with wine, we are to be, if, if I can put it like this, drunk with the Spirit. And that's the second command of verse 18. First, do not get drunk with wine. Then second, but, here it is, be filled with the Spirit. And so we'll, we'll return to this a little later this morning, but this is a command, church. Your obedience is required. If you are a Christian, you must be filled with the Spirit. 
But, and here we return to the question I asked a moment ago, what does that look like? We know what being filled with wine looks like, but what about being filled with the Spirit? Well, in Greek, Paul's answer is quite clear. And the ESV has done a pretty good job at communicating it to us. Following the verb there in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, are four participles. Two in verse 19, one in verse 20, and one in verse 21. And those four participles, they explain what the result is. They tell you what the evidence is of being filled with the Spirit. What are those participles? Well, you can spot them because the ESV helpfully translates each one of them with the same ending, I-N-G. You see them? Beginning in verse 19, addressing. Middle of verse 19, singing. Verse 20, giving. And verse 21, submitting. You want to know what it means to be filled with the Spirit? There it is. We will be a people who address, sing, thank, and submit. Or to go after, after another way, being filled with the Spirit looks like encouragement, worship, gratitude, and submission. Let's flesh each one of those out. The first evidence of being filled with the Spirit here in our passage, again, is this idea of encouragement. And I'm getting that from the beginning of verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But your question should be at this point, well, why are you calling this encouragement? Well, look at the first three words, just the first three words of verse 19. Addressing who? One another. You immediately see sort of the horizontal focus of all of this, don't you? We're talking about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and yet, who are the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs directed to? To God? To one another. Does that sound strange to you? It sounds strange to me. It reminds me of what has been called the one, two, three rule. What's the one, two, three rule? Well, the one, two, three rule helps us as Christians think more robustly about our lives of worship. Here's how it works. We have one object of our worship, the triune God and the triune God alone. We worship the Father in the Son through the Spirit, uh, the Father in the Son through the Spirit, and we worship no one else. We have no other gods but Him. That's the very first commandment, Right? So that's the one in the one, two, three rule. We have one object of worship. The two in the rule points to the context of our worship. So we worship both as gathered saints and we worship as scattered saints. So gathered, of course, refers to our corporate gathering here this morning on the Lord's Day. But then, after the benediction, we are commissioned out into the world, but we're not supposed to stop worshiping God, right? We are scattered out into our various homes and neighborhoods and vocations, and we are called to worship God there, too. So we worship God, gathered and scattered. Then you have the three of the rule. 
The three refers to the audience of our worship. Since God is the sole object of our worship, of course, he is one of the audiences of our worship, but he's not the only one. Ephesians 5 makes clear the church is also an audience of our worship, and so is the watching world. Now, I say that to say this. Our passage this morning, it zeroes in on the church, doesn't it? As we lift up our voices together each and every Lord's Day, please note this. We are addressing not just God, Scripture says, but we are also addressing one another. And that is why I am calling this encouragement. Because when we assemble together and we worship God, we are speaking, we are singing, we are addressing both God and one another. We are to lift our voices, Christian, for the sake of the person next to us. We are to lift our voices for the sake of the person two rows up and over there on the right and then back there on the left. And we are to do this to encourage one another. You're no doubt aware of, of how this whole thing gets worked out. We get together and we sing. There, there's something powerful about that dynamic. When you hear the sound of your brothers and sisters singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it reminds you immediately, does it not, that you are not alone. Sure, you might be a lonely widow. Or you might come from a, a large family and have lots of, of siblings, but you still sort of feel alone in that environment. But when the church gathers... And, and the church raises her voice, you are immediately reminded as you hear that sort of cacophony of voices behind you and in front of you, you are reminded, I'm not alone. I have a family of faith who loves me, who will weep with me, and who will rejoice with me. Or think when you hear that suffering saint singing, man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. When you hear your suffering brother or sister in our midst sing that song, does it not encourage your soul? Or when you hear the little ones sing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Does it not warm your heart? Or when you happen to hear that that young single sister who so longs to be married and to have a family, and you, and you hear her singing the words, I will wait for you, I will wait for you, on your word I will rely, and I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. When you hear her sing that, is your soul not satisfied? Are you not strengthened and renewed? When you hear the man next to you, struggling with cancer, or the woman lamenting the fact that her son has walked away from the faith, or the, or the recently divorced spouse whose life is just in a million pieces. When you, when you hear these with tears in their eyes singing, it is well with my soul, are you not encouraged? And so I want to take this opportunity 
once again to really sort of lean in on you if I can. Church as a whole and Christian as an individual, you must sing to be heard. When we gather together for corporate worship and we lift up our voices, you are to lift up your voices. You are to be heard. You are to sing to be heard by those who are around you. And that is because it is one of the God-ordained means of grace whereby, whereby we encourage each other as brothers and sisters. So for the sake of your brother and sister, sing to them. Sing for them. Address them in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And when you do, Know that this is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your soul. Let me direct your attention to the second evidence of being filled with the Spirit. It's closely related. This morning, I'm calling it worship. Our passage continues. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here it is now. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Do you notice the the shift here? Because we've gone from addressing one another, right, to singing and making melody to the Lord, right? We've moved, haven't we, from sort of the horizontal now to the vertical. But we're still making noise, right? That's the point. What this puts front and center then is that life in the Spirit is loud, As Christians, we are a singing people. And the reason that we sing is because we have something to sing about. If Ephesians has taught us anything over the last couple of months or years, however long it's been, it is that we were, Ephesians 2, 1, born dead in trespasses and sins. Scripture has taught us that that left to ourselves, we are, Ephesians 2, 3, children of wrath. We were born with, Ephesians 4.18, hard hearts. Our minds, Ephesians 4.17, are futile. We are completely alienated from God and ripe only for His judgment. That is the plight of every single one of us and every single person on planet Earth in and of themselves. But what has God done? What has God done despite our sin, despite our rebellion? What has God done for us? Well, he has given us nothing less than his son. God has become a man in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. God doesn't require you and I to somehow rescue ourselves, to sort of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and by sure willpower to just kind of make myself a better person. No. God is rich in mercy and full of great love, Ephesians 2.4. We are told that by His grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. Your your salvation is not, I repeat, not the result of your good works, Ephesians 2.9. But rather, it is through faith in Christ. By you and I completely resting in the sufficiency of what he has done for us. 
And then if that wasn't enough, we soon discover that this grace, it extends deep into eternity past. In fact, we are told that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. So I say again, as Christians, we have something to sing about. This is what makes the sort of swing from congregational singing to stage performances so disheartening. You know what I mean? There's been a push over the last few decades, particularly in evangelical churches. You don't see it as much in sort of high churches. But in so sort of lower, uh, lower liturgy, sort of Bible churches, evangelical churches, things like that, there's been this sort of subtle, not-so-subtle push to make singing something that, that really those up front are supposed to do. Lights are turned off down out there. Lights are turned on up here. Speakers are turned up so loud you couldn't hear yourself talk to your spouse if you tried to. The songs are sung in keys and pitches in ways that you and I couldn't keep up even if we tried. All of a sudden, the congregation, the church, is, we're sort of becoming spectators, aren't we? And what makes this so tragic is that, among other things, we were created to sing. Kent Hughes goes so far as to say, there is a sense in which when people are born again, music is born again in their souls. And that's true. That's absolutely true. As those who are filled with the Spirit, we can't help but sing. Lions roar, fish swim, stars shine, and Christians sing. It's part of our new nature. And to be clear, we can't help but sing with our heart. Isn't that how the end of verse 19 puts it? Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't register any decibels when we sing. We do. But it does mean that whatever comes out of our mouth ought to first flow forth from our heart. And, and I would just say that this is a danger. This is a danger to young and old Christians alike. This is a plague that has to be avoided. It's, it's easy, is it not? Just be honest for a moment. It's easy to sort of check out, especially if you've been in a church for any length of time and you are familiar with the music. You know the tune. You, you know the words. We have this particular ability where we can sort of mouth the words all the while thinking through our grocery list or something like that. I would really encourage you, brother and sister, to fight against that attitude that lurks in your heart. To fight against it with all the resources that the Spirit of God will give you. You and I have to know that warm words from a cold heart do us no as Christians, we are to be so immersed in the truths of God and His glory and His gospel that like a volcano, we erupt in white-hot praise. And when we do, it's a mark of being filled with the Spirit. Let me mention the third evidence that Paul gives us, and that is gratitude. Gratitude. That's what verse 20 reveals. 
We read verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will quickly confess that this is an uncomfortable passage of Scripture for me. And it's uncomfortable for the simple reason that it very quickly reveals to, I think, all of us how earthy, how practical, how street-level true spirituality is. What am I getting at? Well, let's say for a moment that you are a zealous evangelist. You share the gospel with people all the time. Or maybe you're a a serious student of Scripture. You've read through the Bible every year now for decades. Or maybe you are a, a generous giver or a dedicated prayer warrior or a dutiful church member. And don't misunderstand me. That's all great. We should strive to that. But are you thankful? Are you thankful towards your spouse, towards your kids, towards those in our community? Or do you give thanks to God? Christian, let me ask you, are you known for your gratitude? This whole thing, this really is the heart and soul of of like applied theology, right? This isn't Christianity in the ivory tower. This is Christianity in the trenches, Do you give thanks to God? Now, lest we try and weasel out of this whole thing, notice that Paul clarifies. He says, giving thanks always. Not sometimes, but always. Christian, life in the Spirit is manifested by a spirit of gratitude. A a thankful spirit is one that is filled by and overflowing with the very Spirit of God. To which you perhaps are thinking, really though? Like always? Maybe this is just a slip of the pen from the Apostle Paul. Hardly. Because Paul goes on to say, giving thanks always and for everything. So so from peaks to valleys, dear Christian, we are to be those who thank our Father. We, We have to understand that as Christians, gratitude is nursed in the bosom of grace. This really is where the rubber of theology meets the road of our lives, isn't it? I say that because if verse 20 said, giving thanks sometimes and for only the good things... Well, uttering such thanksgiving probably wouldn't require the filling of the Spirit, would it? But we are called upon to give thanks to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ always and for everything. To which we scratch our heads and go, well, how can that be? Why would we do such a thing? Well, because with the eyes of faith and the spectacles of Scripture, we see quite clearly We see that all our Father brings into our life, all of it, is for our good and for His glory. Please hear this. Even when it stings. The 20th century Reformed theologian Lorraine Botner, he put his finger on this very thing. Listen to these words of wisdom. He says, since the true Calvinist sees God's hand and wise purpose in everything, he knows that even his sufferings 
sorrows, persecutions, and defeats are not the result of chance or accident, but that they have been foreseen and foreappointed, and that they are chastisements or disciplines designed for his own good. Botner continues, he realizes that God will not needlessly afflict his people, that in the divine plan, these are all ordered in number, weight, and measure, and that they shall not continue a moment longer than God sees necessary. Spurgeon rang a similar bell, and in doing so, he encourages us Spurgeon said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. I think what Spurgeon and and Botner are getting at is this. If they don't come from his hand, whose hand do they come from? Who's in control? Who do I pray to? Who protects me? Who keeps me? William Cooper, the English hymn writer, he put it memorably, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Christian, please understand, life in the Spirit doesn't mean that we become stoics. Right? As if evil and sorrow and difficulty never touch us. That's nonsense. You know it does. But neither does life in the Spirit mean that we become secularists and assume that we are left to our own devices and just sort of these random mechanical laws of nature or something like that. No. Everything that touches your life, everything is father-filtered. It comes from Him, and when it comes from Him, it comes from Him to you for your good and for His glory. You have to understand that every rod that strikes you, it comes from the hand of your Father who loves you. This is why the people of God, this is why you and I, should not just be those who give thanks, but why we should be the most thankful of all people. So I ask again, Christian, what does life in the Spirit look like? What does it mean to be, what's what's the fruit of being filled with the Spirit of God? Paul tells us encouragement, worship, gratitude, and now finally submission. You find that dirty word in verse 21, don't you? submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we'll spend the next couple of weeks unpacking this. We'll see how submission gets worked out when we look at the end of Ephesians 5 and the first half of Ephesians 6. I say that because there we find the various relationships wherein submission manifests itself, specifically marriage, There at the end of Ephesians 5. Then at the beginning of chapter 6, you have the family. 
And then after that, in chapter 6, you have the relationship that exists between bondservants and masters. So, so we're going to look at those particulars then. For now, I just want to highlight how this idea of submission is built into the very nature of life in the Spirit. To, to cut right to the ta- chase, church, as Christians, we are to be a people who yield, who back off, who submit. The, the word itself, it simply means to arrange under. During Paul's day, it was a word that came right out of the military. It referred to the subordination of soldiers in the army to those of a superior rank. So it it really does just mean submit. Why do I bring this up now? Because unfortunately, there are those who who claim to be filled with the Spirit of God. Those who tell us that they are walking with the Spirit and that they are mature. There are those around us who would advertise their godliness, and yet they are aggressive, self-assertive, bombastic, and brash. Not that my experience necessarily accounts for anything, but I have personally seen this with two types of people. Brace yourself. Usually young men and older women. Now, I am not saying everyone that is a young man or an older woman, obviously. But I am saying that when things go sideways, it is usually young men or older women who are in the middle of it. That's the pattern that I've seen over the last eight years in pastoral ministry. Again, I want to say this. One more time, I am, I am not saying that if you are a young man or an older woman that you are necessarily the bad guy or that it is inevitable that you will not submit. I'm not saying that. All that I'm saying is that when I get to the crime scene, it tends to be young men or older women who are the perpetrators. Send your emails to Pastor Justin and Pastor Eddie. These folks tend to be rigid, confrontational. They live in a world where everything is black and white, gray does not exist. They're never wrong. They're always argumentative. Nothing is ever their fault. They're always a victim. They shout at you, make baseless assertions, impugn motives. And generally speaking, they're just, they're just out of control. So, so Christian, let me caution you. If you are red in the face, if you are argumentative, if you are unwilling to yield, if you do not possess a humble and teachable spirit, it's not passion. It's not zeal. It's sin. And it is probably the sin of not submitting, either to your parents, your husband, your pastors, or your boss. I get this. I get that this is hard for us rugged, individualistic American Christians. But we have to submit to Scripture. And according to Scripture, life in the Spirit is evidenced by you and I submitting to the rightful, God-given authority over us. Now, 
Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left in our time together in the Word, so, so let me shift gears just a little bit. We, we've spent the bulk of our time talking about what are the specific marks of being filled with the Spirit. What I want to do very briefly now is return back up to verse 18, and I, and I want to wrestle with the specific command that is found there. Remember, Paul gives two commands in verses 18 through 21. The first is, do not get drunk with wine. But then there's the contrasting command, the one that we've been sort of unpacking, but be filled with the Spirit. And again, we've talked about what that looks like, but before we close our Bibles this morning, I want to point out four realities of this specific command, be filled, okay? For starters, this is a command. Paul is not making a suggestion here. He's not offering you the choice. Do you want McDonald's or Burger King? This is a command, which means it is obligatory. It's not optional. Christian, for you to obey Christ, you must be filled with the Spirit. In addition, it's also worth pointing out that this command is given to the whole of the church, not just to the spiritual elite. Right? To say it differently, this isn't addressed to just pastors. This is not addressed to those who have been Christians for 10 plus years or something like that. No. This is a command given to you, to, to, to all of us. Third, to fulfill this command, you must yield to the Spirit. The, the subtle nuance in the Greek is hard to communicate in English, but perhaps a more literal translation would be something like, let the Holy Spirit fill you. In other words, you play a part in all of this. Utter passivity where you sit on your hands and do nothing and wait for some divine zap or something like that, that is not, I repeat, not what Scripture teaches. You must yield to the Spirit of God. For, for you and I to be filled with the Spirit... We must pursue the Spirit, and we must please the Spirit. To which you respond, well, what does that look like? In short, it means that we give ourselves, for example, to purity. It, it also means that we will be those who are quick to confess of our sins and ask for forgiveness. It will mean that we are a people whose Bible pages are wore out. Not simply because we read them, but because we obey them. We will be a people who make it a priority to gather on the Lord's day and to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained for our growth. Really, if you want to boil it all down, the point is you will not be filled with the Spirit. You cannot be filled with the Spirit while walking in sin. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, turn from your sin and walk with Jesus. Then finally, this command is also not a one and done. It's a present tense in Greek. So we might say something like this. Go on and keep being filled with the Spirit. So it's true that we were sealed with the Spirit just once upon our conversion, Ephesians 1.13. But... We are to be filled afresh with the Spirit on a regular 
basis. And again, the point that I want you to see is that according to God's word, this is sort of the warp and woof of the Christian life. This is, this is the life that we're supposed to live. So zoom out. Zoom out, Christian, and let me ask you, is this your life? Are you a man or a woman filled with the Spirit? Again, not are you over in the corner levitating. Not do you hear God's voice audibly or do you occasionally raise people from the dead. That's all smoke and mirrors. It's distractions at best and deceptions at worst. And just in passing, you need to know, there is no shortage of charlatans out there trying to sell you some really nice oceanfront property in the beautiful state of Utah. Christian, give up chasing all that glitter. Instead, rest in Christ. Seek His grace. Be filled with His Spirit. And as you are, what will characterize your life? What will that look like? It will look like you, encourage, you encouraging others. It will look like worship. It will look like a life of gratitude. And it will look like a life of submission. This church is the evidence of true life in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven... We would ask you this morning in the name of your son that you, might be see, that you might see fit by your spirit to cause us to live in light of the text in front of us. We don't want to be those who are drunk on wine. We don't want to be those who don't understand what your will is. We, we don't want to be those who are walking in rebellion to you. We pray rather that we would be a people, that we would be a people who are filled with your spirit. And so we pray that now. We pray that, again, without fog machines, without smoke and mirrors. We, we pray that with your word opened, gathered together before we come to the table of the Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would make us the men and women that you would have us to be, that, that we would more faithfully and more fully represent Christ, our Savior, in the church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our vocations. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that we ask such things. Amen.